Welcome to our Bottom Line Up Front podcast. I'm SEAC, CZ Colon Lopez, your fourth Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. This podcast is for facts, expert opinions, tough conversations, and getting to the bottom line up front. I want to take a brief moment to give a shout out and thank you to my dear friend Troy McClawhorn for writing, producing, and performing the Bottom Line Up Front intro song. Troy, thank you so much. All right, so welcome to the Bottom Line Up Front podcast. Uh, this is going to be our first episode, and uh, we found it fitting that the first guest will be our 16th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace. Uh, sir, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's a pleasure, see. Thanks a lot for having me. Now, and sir, so for the audience, I just want to share uh, an experience, and that is how I met you. So I was an E7, a master sergeant, and I was the superintendent of training at the pararescue school. And there was some kind of luncheon with the Chamber of Commerce, and you came in as a, as a chairman. And we talked briefly. It was probably like a five, ten minute conversation, and I had the honor to be coined by you at the time. And uh, once I received the coin, I started looking into your history and uh, what you had done as a warrior, as a leader, because I wanted to find out a little bit more about the way that you presented yourself, because your remarks were phenomenal. And uh, clearly, you left an impression, and the more and more I dug into you, the, the, the more excited I got about, wow, you know, this is an honor to be coined by, uh, by uh, this Marine general. Uh, sir, but uh, I don't know if you recall the, the situation uh, back in the day. It was, it was quite a while back. I, I recall the event. I don't recall the conversation, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, and uh, I, I wouldn't expect it to, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that you got to meet a lot of people, you know, throughout your travels. But, uh, you if know. I knew you were going to be SEAC, I would have paid, paid much, much closer attention. <laughs> no. Well, you know, on that topic, sir, you know, the reason you're the first guest is because you created the position of the SEAC. So I want to talk a little bit about that, sir. So why, why did you create the position? Oh, listen, it was to me, it was absolutely a no brainer. Every single time in my military career that I had responsibility to command, I had an incredible right arm enlisted leader. Um, it started as a platoon leader in Vietnam. Uh, then E-5 Sergeant Reed B. Zachary was my platoon sergeant, and he later retired as a sergeant major in the Marine Corps. And Sergeant Zachary was just incredible to be able to lean on and bounce ideas off of him. He was on his second tour in Vietnam. I was on my first, and that was my very first uh, understanding of how valuable uh, the senior enlisted uh, advisor was going to be to me. When I was in a company, my company first sergeant, was for a sergeant named Crawford. He later became Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. Uh, as a battalion, as a recruiting station CO, I had a Sergeant Major named uh, Jimmy Payne. Sergeant Major Payne was like his fourth tour of recruiting duty. I was on my first. My, when I became battalion commander, Sergeant Major Shuler was my Sergeant Major, et cetera, et cetera. Every single time I had leadership responsibilities, I had an enlisted man I could rely on to look me in the eye and, and, and tell me the truth, that not what I needed, what I wanted to hear, but what I, what I needed to hear. So when it became clear to me that the uh, secretary was gonna recommend to the president that, um, he, that I be the uh, 16th chairman, 
when he said, when he said to me, the president's going to nominate you to be the chairman. I said, I only have one request. And my request is that I have a senior enlisted advisor. We hadn't come up with the term SEAC yet, but it made absolute sense uh, that, it that it should uh, turn out to be that way. And he looked at me and he said, why? And I said, because. I said, one, I need it. I need somebody I absolutely trust and it, to look me in the eye and tell me the truth as he knows it. Two, I said, it's very important, especially in wartime, that the troops know that the senior military officer in the armed forces who's talking to the president has a senior enlisted man whispering in his ear what he, need, what he needs to hear. I thought it was, it was important for me as an individual to have that, but it was also important to me symbolically for the troops, for them to know that, that there was what is now called SEAC whispering in my ear. Now, and, uh, and, and Chairman, I'm, I'm going to call you Chairman just because of a habit of, of where I'm at right now. But uh, so you had uh, Command Sergeant Major Joe Ganey as, uh, as your first senior enlisted advisor to the chairman. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how that relationship was during your tenure as a leadership team uh, together. Well, first of all, I was really fortunate that each of the services um, provided to me the name of a really great senior leader. Um, and it was a tough decision. The only thing I was sure of was that despite the fact that the person that the Marine Corps put forward was a superb sergeant major, I thought it would be poor form, truly, for me as a first Marine chairman to pick as the first SEAC another Marine. So I, I was hoping, and my hopes were quickly answered, that I would get a great nominee from each of the other services, and, and they did. They gave me great nominees. Uh, but Sergeant Major Ganey uh, was the one who, when I talked with him, uh, because he had just come out of being a Corps uh, Sergeant Major, um, you know, he had a lot of combat experience. When we talked, you know, we talked same kind of language. I, I felt like, for me, he was going to be the guy who, especially in that job, could, could look me in the eye and tell me what I needed to know. And he was coming off the battlefield, and I had been in, in, on the D.C. battlefield, but, you know, that's not the, that's not the, same, that's not the same thing. And I needed, I needed somebody who really understood what was going on with the troops. So um, when I asked him if he, if he would be the guy, he, he was pleased and proud to do it. And then um, when he, he took over the position, the day I became uh, chairman, he, got, he hit the ground running. And he did exactly what I wanted him to do. I didn't want to give him any guidance. I didn't want to give him any, any, any uh, steerage at all. I just said, listen, I, because I'm, I have to stay here in D.C., to be available to the president, to be available to the secretary, my chance of traveling is going to be limited. You, Sergeant Major, will be able to get out and go, go do things. I said, you go where you want to go. You do what you need to do. Come back and just let me know what I need to know. I don't need to know everything you know. I just need to know what, what, I, need to, what I need to know. And he did that superbly. He would go out and he'd talk to the troops and he'd gather information. He helped me get my message out by being there in person. And then he'd bring back the stuff I needed to know where I could, where I could have some impact hopefully favorably, on the life of the troops. So I, I could not have been happier or more pleased with uh, Sergeant Major Ganey in the role as, as SEAC. Well, Chairman, uh, you know, I, I, I'm also uh, proud to know Joe personally. He's a, he's a close friend. And one thing that I have done since taking over the position as a SEAC number four is to keep those guys informed 
on everything that we're doing because I think it's important not only to learn from them, but also to keep, uh, keep them informed so that they can provide feedback back to the incumbent on the direction that we need to take or you know things that have failed in the past and, and so on. Uh, General Milley did something similar to you, and I, I think he had the same thought process, that he felt that it was important not just for the optic, but for the thought process to have somebody from a different service, which actually resonates with the troops and they actually see an Army general and an airman as a, as a senior enlisted advisor. But your reliance on NCOs goes uh, way back to where you were a second lieutenant in Vietnam. And one name that is synonymous with Peter Pace is uh, Guido Farinari, sir. Can you please tell us a little bit about Guido and what he means to you? See, I'll tell you, the fact that you used the phrase you used to say synonymous with me uh, just made my day. Um, Lance Corporal Guido Farinari was the first Marine I lost. In combat, I had lost Marines wounded, uh, but the first KIA was, was Lance Cole Farinero. Um, and he was killed on the 30th of July, 1968, while we were on patrol outside of Da Nang. Um, and a sniper shot and killed him. And it just infuriated me when it happened. Uh, we may want to get to moral compass here in a little bit, but um, it always stuck with me that I had lost Guido, and then in subsequent uh, firefights, I also lost uh, Corporal Chubby Hale and PSC Whitey Travers, and Corporal Mike Witt, and Staff Sergeant Freddie Williams, and Lance Corporal Little Joe Arnold, and Lance Corporal Dan Miller. Those Marines, all in their, except for the Staff Sergeant, all in their 19, 20, 21 year old years, um, I looked at my I looked at my life when I got back from Vietnam. I didn't get a scratch. I mean, I started out in Way City. I, I didn't get a scratch. Said my prayers on the way home and didn't quite understand why why I had survived when others had not. But I promised the good Lord that I, if if um, as best I could that I would I would try to live my life in a way that they respect to the way that they live live theirs. So so Guido, having been the first, was the one who stood out most in my mind. And any time. Things started to go sideways, whether it was things in the Marine Corps in the early 70s, you know, were not good. We had riots in the barracks. Um, I thought about leaving the service, and as soon as I thought about Guido, I said, no, you owe him more than you can pay. Stay, do your job. Um, if I was uh, sitting in front of Congress, you know, I never, I never took any notes with me, but I would, there'd be a pad of paper there. And um, the first thing I would do when I sat down at the witness chair was write Lance Corporal Guido Farinero on the piece of paper. So that if, you know, the question got a little testy or, you know, Congressman came and left and I got asked the same question five times by five different people, you know, I would just look at his name and say, your job is to answer the question. Just answer the question. Do the best you can. Guido and the other Marines you lost in combat, and since then, the other service members, deserve you to do your job. So for me, it was very much a, um, a calling. To, to, to live my life in a way to pay respect to his and the others I mentioned. And sir, it, it, by now it's gonna be pretty evident to the audience to realize that you're truly a leader that cares. I mean, every single one of those names came right up uh, and uh, you just 
basically one by the number without any notes or anything else. And that's something else that I noticed uh, about some of your uh, speaking engagements. And that was, that was that whenever you had a speaking engagement, you didn't have any big binders, you know, just a tabletop. And then, you know, you mentioned that if you didn't know it, then maybe you shouldn't be talking about it. You know, because, I mean, you took your, your responsibilities to heart, which is something that we're doing nowadays as well. But, uh, you know, you always, you were always a, a man of principle. And at one point, you mentioned that in your thought process, whenever you were making a decision of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you will ask yourself this, if we do this, how is this going to impact private first class pace on the battlefield. Elaborate a little bit more on that because I think that will be something that the troops will appreciate, sir. Yeah, I will see. Thanks for asking that question. You know, in Vietnam, I was lieutenant and, you know, I, I said to myself, not thinking I ever would, but, you know, I, said, I would say to myself, man, if I ever get to be a general, if I'm ever in a position to be able to, to speak my mind to the people who are making decisions in D.C., I, I'm going to tell it to them like it is, or at least as, as best as I, as I know it to be. And I, and I want to remember that my advice is going to impact, you know, PFC pace on the battlefield. So I, I did that over many, many years. No matter what position I had, I would think to myself, yeah, how is this going to impact the troops? And I, it got to be where I would express it that way. You know, if, if we do this, Mr. President, this is what's going to happen for PFC pace in the battlefield. And I, I first started using that phrase with the president, you know, as soon as I started going over to the NSC meetings as vice chairman. And I was delighted. Just like I was delighted when you said I'm synonymous with Guido Farinero, I was delighted when the president, about six months into my time as vice chairman, turned to me at a meeting and said, how is this going to impact PFC Pace? And I said, this is perfect. It's not that, it's not that you change um, what you're going to do. It's that you remember that when you're in a well-lit room in Washington, D.C., and the air conditioner is working just fine, and you got a cup of coffee in your hand, and you're making a decision about what you're going to do next, that there's somebody, some soldier, some Marine, some airman out there who's sweaty and hot and dirty, and he or she's going to be paying the price for whatever it is you, you decide in this room. And I think it's really incumbent on senior leaders as they get more senior, as you are right now, and you're sitting in the Pentagon in a nice office, you know, but, but I know you haven't forgotten either. You know, what we do as senior leaders, the decisions we make, impact very directly the lives of our troops in, in, in combat. So I use that phrase to keep myself straight. And the, the adjunct to that has been that in keeping myself straight, it's helped other people think the same way. Uh, General, and I will tell you that for the way that you carry yourself and what you do is more than a phrase. And I would like to go back to something that you did. Um, and I'm not sure if it was when you were getting ready to uh, depart the Pentagon on your conclusion of your tour as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but it was the fight by eight cards that you brought to all of the fallen at the Vietnam Memorial with the four stars pinned to it. And you told them, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that these are yours, not mine. Tell us about that, sir. Yes, yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, I believe then and I believe now that the reason I became chairman was because I felt a, a sense of duty to the Marines that I lost initially and then follow on combat, more senior positions, other service members. Um, but the day I retired uh, off the... Uh, parade deck up at uh, Fort Myer, 
Uh, my family didn't even know we were going to do this. Uh, I just asked them if they'd get in the car with me. And of course, I still have my security detail. So we, we, you know, we piled into the black limousines. Uh, and it was supposed to be a private moment. Um, in retrospect, it's kind of hard to have a private moment when you're dressed in marine blues, you got four stars on, looking like a 58 Buick, you got your sword on your side. You know, it wasn't exactly inconspicuous moment. Uh, but, but it was important to me to go do it because I, I, I needed to tell my guys that I was retiring that day as a four-star chairman of the Joint Chiefs because they had, they had sacrificed themselves. So I did. I took a card down for each of my, my Marines, and I had taken my four stars and put it on each of the cards and said basically what you said, which is to Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro, in, the, in his case, um, these, these are yours, not mine. Love your platoon leader, Pete Pace. Um, I needed to do that. I, I had to do that. Uh, tears all around for me and my family. Emotional right now, as a matter of fact. Um, because it was my way of saying to them, um, as best I could, to that date, I, I'd lived my life in a way to pay respect to theirs. And I know now, I still know, uh, 13 years post-retirement date, that I still owe more than I can ever repay. And I will always owe more than I can ever repay. Um, but it was, it was a chance to, to do something um, publicly, and I didn't mean to be public, but to do it uh, in a way that demonstrated, I guess is what I'm looking for, um, my commitment to them. And I was at first surprised a little bit and a little disappointed that it got reported and then I realized, you know, actually, um, it's nice that it got picked up on and that today's troops, at the time, today's troops, know that their chairman cared about them, would, re would remember them. Um, we didn't yet go viral uh, on, on the Internet. Uh, I suspect if it happened today, it'd go, it would have gone viral. It went the equivalent of viral back then. And uh, it makes me feel good when somebody comes up to me now and says, hey, I remember what you did the day you retired. And it meant a lot to me as an airman someplace or as a soldier someplace. That, that makes me feel good that my message of concern for the troops was seen as genuine, which, which I hope it was. No, and, and it certainly was, sir. And, you know, just a small action in just a few minutes of your day that you decided to do that because it was in your heart and that you wanted to pay tribute to those who pay the ultimate sacrifice. It's still resonating years and years afterwards. And uh, again, yet another great leadership lesson learned from uh, General and Chairman uh, Peter Pace. Um, on that topic, sir, you have a, an interest in philosophy when it comes to leadership, and uh, you have stated that you cannot teach leadership, that you can emulate, listen, learn, and talk about it, but you cannot teach it. Tell us a little bit more about that. I, I think you, it's, it's more about exposure. So if you're, if you're standing in front of a group someplace and you're talking about leadership, you're not really teaching. You, you, you're, you're, you're exposing people to it. Um, so I believe... I believe that leadership principles are universal, um, but I think each individual um, applies them in their own way or their own personality. And I tell, I, I still get to talk to every lieutenant at the basic school at Quantico 
every year, about 3,000 attendants a year. I get them 300 at a time. And one of the things I say to them is, listen, um, look at leaders you, you admire. Take the traits that they have that you admire and emulate them. But understand that maybe it will or won't, it won't work for you. So, for example, I like to touch people. I, I like when someone puts their arm around me and says, hey, Pete, you did a good job. I like to do the same thing to, to the guys and gals around me. But, you know, what I say to the lieutenants and the other audiences is, listen, if somebody puts their arm around you and they're not comfortable doing that, it comes across as phony. And you do more damage than good emulating somebody who does something really nice, but, but it doesn't work for you. So I say, listen, try it. If it works for you, keep it in your kit bag. If it doesn't work for you, don't do it. Because every good leader doesn't have to do every good leadership trait. Just the ones that work for you. But I truly believe that the, the best way to learn about leadership is to be immersed with other great leaders. That's one thing about the military. We've got more great leaders per square inch than, than most organizations have. And for most of us, I was lucky, as were you, I'm sure. Otherwise, you wouldn't be where you are. I was immersed my entire career amongst good leaders. And I watched what they did. And I tried to do things like, like they did. And when it worked for me, I kept it. When it didn't, I didn't. But yeah, you can, you can talk about leadership, but I don't think you teach it. I think, I think you expose people. They get it through osmosis or whatever. And they try it. And they keep the stuff that works for them. And then they pass it on to the next guy. Yeah, and that is, uh, that is an absolute truth. And uh, there's a misconception out there that the more you read, the smarter you're going to get and the better of a leader you're going to be. But one thing that I have learned personally, sir, is that in order to be a great leader, in order to be a leader at all, because there shouldn't really be a pronoun, uh, you know, you're either a leader or you're not, uh, part of it is taking action. And you, uh, I'm going to quote you once again, sir, because this is, uh, this is the book on, on Peter Pace's leadership. And uh, you stated that if you're going to be in trouble, let it be for doing something and not for waiting for something to happen. Make decisions. When did you start thinking that way, sir? I learned that early on in Vietnam. I mean, I've been to, I get out off the plane, went to, to Way City, got right into the third week of the Battle of Hue City. Uh, so I was immersed right away in, in the, you know, boot deep in combat. But um, when, when we secured the city about a, about a month later, uh, my company was given the mission to go on a patrol outside the city to see if there were any NVA units left. And my platoon was given the point. And it was high elephant grass. So we were in single file. So this company of Marines was, was strung out pretty good. But I was up front where I, should, where I should be, about the fourth or fifth guy in column. And along the way, we came to a decision point, and I called back to my company commander. You know, I'm, I'm a second lieutenant, 22 years old. The company commander's a captain, 24 years old. And I called back to him and said, you know, basically, you want me to go left or go right? And he says, I go left. Yeah, and then about you know, an hour later, I called back for more guidance, and he gave it to me. And about an hour or so after that, I called back the third time for guidance. And that time, I, I, I like to use the phrase, if you take out the curse words, he said nothing to me. But I got the message, which was, for God's sake, Lieutenant, I gave you the job. I'm trying to run this company. You're supposed to be leading the company on this patrol. Do your job. So I got mad. First, I got mad at him. I got mad at myself because I knew he was right. And I gave the radio back to my radio operator, Corporal Irwin. And I said, if he calls again, tell him I'm not here. 
I said, because I'm going to start making decisions. And I promised myself that day, if I ever got my butt chewed again, which I did, it was going to be for going too far. You were going to have to hold me back. You were not going to have to put a worm in my mouth like I'm a little bird waiting for a worm. So I learned early on, thanks to then Captain, now retired and deceased Colonel Chuck Meadows, U.S. Marine Corps, uh, when he was a captain in Vietnam, he taught me to have a bias for action, to, to do something. And when you think about it, if you're in an ambush, you're exactly where the enemy wants you. That's why you do something. Anything you do changes the, changes the, uh, um, the analysis. It's not always about combat, obviously, but when you're, when you're in a situation and you've got decisions to make, make them. And the other points are very simple, which is, look, if it's your decision to make, make it. If it's your boss's decision to make, get it to him or her as fast as you can, because you're stealing time from them and their leadership opportunities. And then there's a the times when you're not really sure if it's your decision or, or your boss's decision. And in that case, what I recommend to people is, look, think it through. And then go to your boss and say, hey, boss, I'm not sure if this is your decision or mine. If it's my decision, that's what I'm going to do. If it's your decision, that's what I recommend you do. You know, and if, you, if you're working for me, I love you. You paid respect to my position as your, as your boss, but you haven't just come to me, like I said, like a bird waiting for me to put a worm in your mouth. You've, came, you've come with a, a problem and a possible solution. And I can say, hey, you got it, go do it. Or I've got it, I'll do that. Or I've got it, I'm, and I'm going to extrapolate from what you gave me and do, and do this over here, whatever those reasons are. But um, yeah, a bias for action. To, to, to do things, because that's why you're a leader. That, that's why you've been entrusted with however many troops you've been entrusted with to, to, to try to help get that job done. No, and sir, you know, that, that is something that in our community, in special operations, you know, we're, we're always looking for teammates who act decisively in the absence of orders. And that pretty much sums up what you said. If, if you're responsible and if you have a charge to take care of something, you take care of it. You don't wait for somebody else to do it. You know, you know better than I do this, SEAC. The, the hidden strength of the U.S. Armed Forces is subordinate leaders who, given a task and a mission and a commander's intent, start the action. Whatever it is, there's immediately friction. They don't report back. They have in their head what's the intended outcome. And they make decisions on the fly and change the orders they were given to get to the outcome, the end of the mission that they were given. And that's why the U.S. Armed Forces are so strong. Not because the generals and senior guys are so, so smart. No, because the Lance Corporals and the Corporals and the Captains and the, and the Majors are, are, are making decisions on the fly that get to the stated objective. No, and, uh, and Chairman, you know, this, this is something that we recently published, the desired leader attributes for the enlisted force. And there's three key elements that we have, and that's character, competence, and commitment. And then following those, you know, we value the, the culture of the service and then what we do as joint warfighters, understanding each other. But one thing that is, uh, that is critical is courage, because you have to have the courage, you have to have the experience and the guts to try to sometimes enter that unknown realm. And on that topic, you talk about physical and moral courage. And you mentioned that in combat, you're, if you're wrong, you die. But in the boardroom, if you're wrong, you have to leave with it. You have to live with it in the conference room. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, see, I, you know, it's strange, but um, 
it's almost easier. And I, I don't mean to, to underplay this card. I, it's, it's almost easier to have courage in combat because you look to your left and you look to your right and you know that the guys and gals on, on your left and right are depending on you and you go out and you go do your job. And there's an, there's an impetus there. Um, and I absolutely, obviously admire, respect uh, anyone who displays valorous courage, clearly. But I've seen individuals who have earned the ribbons on their chest fold like cheap suitcases in a well-lit room sitting around a table where people are putting ideas on the table. And they're afraid to put their idea on the table lest they be thought of as being wrong. Which to me is just incomprehensible. You need courage to be able to sit there and I admire the courage of an individual who's sitting in a room where everybody around him has their head going up and down agreeing with the boss and that that individual has a temerity to say, I see this differently and here's why. That individual is worth their weight in gold. If I want to know how smart I am as a general, I can convince myself of that in the morning when I'm shaving. Gee, Pete, you're smart. Yeah, you are. You're pretty good looking too. Well, thank you very much. You know? No. What I need is, if my baby's ugly, I need somebody to tell me my baby's ugly. And that takes courage. But it's more, in, it's more important for the senior to establish that. To establish that I need you, I want you to, to challenge me. When I'm talking to uh, junior leaders who are looking for you know, how-tos of, of military life, I say, listen, think about it this way. When you have a position of leadership, you want your subordinates speaking up. Do you not? Yes, you do. Why would you think your boss is any different? He or she needs you to speak, needs you to speak up. When do you make your best decision? When your subordinates have their heads going up and down like this and don't ask any questions? Or when they ask you questions? When does your boss make the best decisions? When you're quiet or when you're asking questions? I said, so, so understanding that your value added is a major piece of it. But then it's easy for me to say, hey, look, you got to tell, tell truth to power. Okay, yeah, you do have to tell truth to power. But that only works if power listens. And, you, and power does not listen if you attack them. If I say to my boss, hey, Major, I disagree. He has to win nine times out of seven because I've challenged him and I got a little testosterone problem here. If I say something like, sir, if you hadn't said that, I was thinking this, can you educate me? Now I haven't challenged him. I've deferred to his senior position. I've told him I'm presuming he's right and I'm wrong. It, it may just be a, a play of words in my head, but it's important to get the idea on the table in a way that he or she can, can absorb it. Then. They can say, your boss can say, hey, yeah, you're right. We'll do it that way. Or no, this is what, here's the education you asked for. I did that. I can't remember when I first learned how to do that, but it was somewhere around lieutenant captain time. And I did it with the president of the United States in the White House. Mr. President, if you hadn't said that I was thinking this, can you educate me about that? Now, honestly, the more senior I became, the more assured I was of myself when I said, I'll put this on the table and form the question. I can't wait to see how, how they react to my brilliance. Uh-huh. I, I got the answer. I, I got the education I asked for just enough times to make me really happy. I had put it on the table as a question and, and not as a demand, so to speak. 
getting your idea on the table. I promised myself early on, and especially when I came to DC, I promised myself I would never leave a meeting where I had a feeling in the pit of my stomach. And that's what every leader should do. You should never leave any meeting, whether it's in a foxhole out in the field someplace or in a well-lit room someplace in DC. You should never leave a meeting with a feeling in the stomach that something's not right. Get it on the table. You don't have to be right. Your leaders do not expect you to be right all the time, but they have a right to expect that you'll be loyal in raising questions that don't seem right to you. If it doesn't, if you think that Joe Sixpack down at the 7-Eleven isn't going to get this, then you ought to say something to somebody to make sure that you get it. No, and uh, General, I, th I think uh, that part of that also is humility, just knowing your limits and uh, just knowing and accepting the fact that you don't have all the answers. And sometimes that outside perspective may be critical in making the, the real best uh, decision. And uh, often we succumb to the pressure that, you know, we're filling an office, we're supposed to provide the answers to the people, and I think I know what is best. And one shouldn't be disregarding the input from the, from the lower echelons. Uh, which brings me to the next topic that, that I want to bring with you. And that is all about the pressures, and that is the, the moral compass conversation. You mentioned briefly earlier about not making decisions in anger. And I, I heard this from uh, Chairman Dempsey here re uh, recently, that everything that begins with anger typically ends in shame. And, you know, you have, you know, topics to where the, the issue in Vietnam when you uh, lost your man, Guido specifically, after the sniper uh, killed him. And then you talk about for, not forfeiting your integrity, sir. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, the moral compass and not forfeiting, uh, forfeiting your integrity? I will, but before I forget the point, because it, because it came to mind when we were talking on the last topic, and that is, if, if somebody has ever asks you, not you, a person, me, are you a good leader? I think if any of us thinks to themselves, yes, we've lost it. I think we should always believe that we have to work harder to be the leader that our troops deserve from us. The instant that we start believing that we are good leaders is the instant we, we really should be turning in our, turning in our, our, our rank, so to speak. Um, we should always be believing that we may be fairly good, but we can always be better. And our troops always deserve better than whoever we are that, that day and the, and the next day. So I wanted to get on the table my, my fundamental belief that it's the instant you start thinking you're pretty darn good at what you're doing, you're in trouble. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, so back to the Lance Gold Affair an hour. And, and, I, when I was in Quantico, Virginia in 67, 68, going through, as a second lieutenant, going through the basics course that all Marine officers go through um, in route to Vietnam, um, there was a discussion in leadership class one day about troops possibly committing atrocities in combat. And I remember saying to myself, that's crazy. I would never allow myself or any of my troops to ever do anything illegal or immoral in combat. Not going to happen. That was, call it December 1967. 30th July 1968, Guido shot by a sniper. And I got to him before he died, and I was infuriated. And I called in an artillery strike. 
on the village from which the firing came. And fortunately, as you know, SEAC, it takes a while for you to ask for the rounds to hit and the time to get on the ground. And during that time, my platoon sergeant, again, my right hand, my right hand uh, Sergeant Zachary, didn't say anything to me, but I could tell by the way he was looking at me that he wasn't comfortable with what I was doing. So I did what I should have done in the first place. I called off the artillery strike and we swept through the village on foot and all we found, go figure, were, were women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself today had I killed all, all those innocents. Um, I certainly would not have stayed on active duty. It stunned me. It stunned me that I had almost done something that immoral at a time when I was just emotionally uh, drained. When the patrol was over, I got my platoon together and I apologized to him. And I promised him that the best I could, I would never let myself get in that position again. And I agree with General Dempsey's phrase about anger ends up in, was it disaster? In yeah. shame. In shame, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I'm going to remember that because that, that's, a, that's a true statement. Um, so, so what I've done literally every day to include this morning, since 30 July 1968, while shaving, I think about what might challenge me morally today. 99.999% of the time, nothing challenges you morally today. But sometimes it does. And the times that it has, it's never been something I thought about. It's something totally different. But, but it's not that you can predict what you're going to get, how you're going to be challenged morally. It's that you have trained yourself by thinking about it routinely. Where are my left and right limits as a person? So that when you do get an order, when you get an order, part of your automatic response to that in your head takes three nanoseconds is, is this legal? Is this moral? Bang. Takes about that long. Rarely, 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 if ever, are you going to get an order that's not. But it's worth the time to take that few seconds and think it through as to whether or not you should be doing this. If I do this, can I live with myself tomorrow? If you train yourself to make that part of your decision process, why you're saying, aye, aye, sir, to be thinking about what that means, um, you, you'll do yourself and your troops a lot of good. So that's that to me is setting your moral compass. And I say to the lieutenants at Quantico and any, any other group that asked me to talk to them about leadership, if you haven't already set your moral compass, do so. Who are you? What will, allow your, what will you allow yourself to do and who you want to be tomorrow morning? Because, because the guy and gal you, you wake up with tomorrow morning is the person you're going to live with the, the rest of your life. There was another part of your question, Siak, and I, I forgot what the second part was. I apologize. No, the other one was just the topic of uh, do not forfeit your integrity. Yeah, so that, you know, somebody once said to me, hey, Pete, um, if you have integrity, nothing else matters. And if you do not have integrity, nothing else matters. And that's really all you have to know to think about integrity. And it's absolutely fundamentally true. You have your name, you have your integrity. Nobody can take it from you, you can give it away. And shame on us if we ever let our integrity uh, slip out the door. Absolutely, integrity is everything and uh, it actually sets a stage for the way that people are not only going to listen to you, but their choice to either follow you or not. So it's very critical. Throughout your entire career, sir, I mean, you ended up going from a young lieutenant in combat to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. At the combination of your tour, you received from President Bush the Presidential Medal of Freedom. 
talk to us a little bit about how that experience was and what that meant to you when you received that, uh, that accolade. I promised myself as a lieutenant, um, because we had the discussion about awards and decorations, and I remember as a second lieutenant thinking to myself, I would never accept an award or a decoration that I didn't earn. And over time, I went from being lieutenant pace to being general pace, and then I realized somewhere along the line that what I really meant was I would never accept an award that somebody didn't earn. But there's a very important part there, which is understanding who earned it and who didn't. And, and clearly, especially with something like the Presidential Medal of Freedom, that I accepted on behalf of the troops. I mean, they are the ones who did all the work. They are the ones who um, took my, I'm not just talking about as chairman, I'm talking about my entire career. They're the ones who took my intent, got into the friction part, changed my orders, to get to the right outcome. Uh, it made me look like I knew what I was doing, when in fact, often, it, if it hadn't been for them, we would have been in a much, much uh, more difficult position. So when I, when I did accept it, I told the president, I said, sir, uh, with your permission, I'll, I'll accept this on, on behalf of all the, all the troops because they clearly are the ones who have earned this. So am I proud to have gotten that? Of course I am. Uh, but I also need to remember, like I said, if you think you're a good leader, you're not. If you think you'd earned a medal, you haven't. Uh, you, you, really, you really have to pound humility into yourself every day because in the nicest possible way, the more senior you become, the more nice things people do for you, the more accolades they throw at you. And if you're not careful, you start thinking you deserve that. You don't deserve that. The stars that I had, the SEAC uh, insignia that you had, these are lent to us by the American people. We get to wear them and we get to have the power that comes with that and we get to use that power. And to the extent I used any of that power for myself, shame on me. And to the extent I use it for everybody else, good for me. And I, and I believe that in my heart of hearts. So thank you for asking about the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, obviously, to get it. The words that the president said to me, both publicly and in private about that, mean a great deal to me, but I would be remiss if I didn't absolutely fundamentally say, I know who earned that, and it wasn't Pete Pace. Well, sir, um, that is a big part of it, and that is your humility and your, your, your service to those uh, under your charge and your command. And I am gonna go ahead and go down a list of things that I actually learned from you, unknowingly, but until now. So, you know, you mentioned the fallen in combat, and shortly after I started losing my own group of friends in, the, in recent conflict, I will always send out, send out a note to the, to the masses on doing memorial push-ups for them, just, you know, remembering them and uh, keeping them in our memories. Now here at, at, at the SEAC, you know, Janet and I, my wife and I, go out to Arlington to just go ahead and pay our respects every so often because there's uh, a lot of blood and treasure out there that was very near and dear to us. 
I also got in the habit of being an action-based leader, and I share the quote about acting decisively in the, in the absence of orders. And uh, I also swore that I will never be a mouthpiece. While I relay your message, I'm your sensor, your synchronizer, and your integrator as chairman, I will not just merely be a mouthpiece. I have my own mind, my heart, and my own experience, and I will share that with the troops and put it in that context just to keep them motivated and focused on what's more important to them. Again, a parallel to the way that you carry yourself. You also mentioned calling the baby ugly, and believe it or not, I wrote a leadership paper called Calling the Baby Ugly, and that is talking truth to power. And uh, sometimes we just gotta say unpleasant things to get to the right outcome. And also, uh, on the topic of getting it right and just continue, continuously reassessing yourself, there's a quote that I often use, and it's actually in the back of my SEAC column. It says, amateurs train until they get it right, but professionals train until they cannot get it wrong. We're never at our best. We're continuously reevaluating and training and teaching ourselves how to be better. And then the last thing that I will share with you, sir, is that one of my silver bullets is like know the difference between your character and your reputation because one leads to the other. If you have flawed character, your reputation is going to be bad. But if you have good character, your reputation is going to precede you and people are going to be looking forward to sharing the same battle space with you. So those are the indirect things that I got from your presence, your leadership, and your actions over your entire career span, sir, that actually helped shape the leaders up to date. So on behalf of the entire force, 2.4 million people, I wanna say thank you for being that example and being a class act, uh, somebody that we can all look, look up to and to actually use still to this day as a relevant model of leadership for all of us. So on behalf of all of them, sir, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thank you very much, see, I, coming from you, that means a great deal to me, and I mean it sincerely. Uh, you know, each of us, you, me, all of us, who've ever had the privilege of wearing the cloth of our nation, uh, it makes a difference what other people think outside the service, but most important, we care deeply about our, what our fellow servicemen and women think of us. Um, and when a fellow service member like you says something like that to me, it, it, it means a great deal. Thank you. No, thank you, sir. And I think it's, uh, it's fitting to go ahead and uh, look at both of our backdrops. I mean, look at yours, look at mine. And those are the things that are most important to us. And we know our lot in life and we know exactly why we're here to do the things that we do. Um, but on that note, sir, I would like to provide you an opportunity to say anything that you would like to the troops as they listen to us. Oh, thank you very much. See, I appreciate that. And to anyone who, who is listening to this, uh, who is serving in the armed forces today, thank you. Uh, I thank you as a citizen. I thank you as a former chairman. Uh, I thank you uh, as a, a, a running mate. Uh, truthfully, uh, I'd like to be with you wherever you are, no matter how dark it might be, where you happen to be at this moment. Um, thank you for your service. Just know that there are many, many, many of us who have had the privilege of serving who would uh, swap places tomorrow and do it all again. So um, very importantly, uh, we all get a chance to say thank you to each other often. Let me ask you, please, um, if you have a family, thank your family. Um, I know from my own kitchen that when we get tired, uh, our spouses dust us off and tell us you know, how important we are to the nation. 
And when we go off to war, they sit home and pray. And because they don't know when we're in trouble, they think we're in trouble all the time. You know, we know when we're in trouble. We know we're in good shape because we're with our, our fellow service members. And we know the other guy's in trouble, not us. But our families worry about us all the time while we're gone. And they say our prayer, their prayers that we come home safe. And when we do come home safe and um, we get awards and decorations and get promoted, they stand in the background and pretend they had nothing to do with it. Whereas, in fact, they had everything to do with it. So our families serve this nation as well as any of us who've ever had the privilege of wearing the cloth. And we all should be thanking them and, and reminding them that we know how much they are uh, important to us and to the nation. But again, to each of you serving today, thank you. This is a tough time for our nation. I guess it's always been, it always will be, and we always need a strong armed forces, and that's you. Thank you very much. Now, thank you, uh, Chairman. So then, uh, there you have it. This is uh, the first episode of the Bottom Line Up Front podcast. Uh, first to our guest, General and Chairman Retire, uh, Peter Pace, thank you so much for being here today, sir. We would also like to thank your uh, special assistant, Colonel Retire uh, Katie Haddock, for helping us out and uh, coordinating, and also to uh, Team SEAC 4 for all of the behind the scenes to make this happen, getting the information, and then the most important and critical part was syncing up our schedules to make sure that we were able to go ahead and carry this on. Also, to all of our senior enlisted leaders from across the services, we want to thank them for providing sound leadership during these times. And most importantly, to everybody out on the battlefield currently today, still serving our nation, uh, supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States. Uh, if you would like to find out more about the duties of the SEAC and any actions that were taken, Please check us out on the SEAC Facebook page, the Joint Staff Facebook page, and also our YouTube page. And uh, you can find a lot of good pieces of information there and track all of the actions that were taken. So ladies and gentlemen, this has been your Bottom Line Upfront podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, thank you for what you do. And thank you for defending our nation.